Good morning, church. Uh, glad you're here this morning. Joy to worship God together with you. Um, just what a beautiful day God's given us. And to wake up this morning and to get out and hear birds, beginning of February. Does that feel good to hear birds? It's awesome. Uh, before we launch into the message and talk about those words you just heard, um, just want to acknowledge Easter is coming up pretty fast this year, actually. It's the end of March. So maybe you've heard of something called Lent. I didn't grow up. I heard about this. This is something other Christians did. I didn't know much about it. But Lent is just a period of time that in the history of the church uh, has become a time of preparation for Easter. And just like we have Advent season at, at Christmas, so in order to uh, prepare ourselves and for kind of our own spiritual formation in preparation uh, for the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, uh, many Christians practice something called Lent, the season of preparation and formation. And so we want to participate in this as a church. We're making available uh, uh, devotional guides that uh, will walk you through those 40 days of Lent. Uh, and we want to encourage as many of you as possible to take part in that uh, at our Welcome Center. We'll have available these guides. They're $20 each for each of the 40 days. Uh, there's a couple, day, a couple pages of reading and some discussion questions, and so this is just a great thing. If you're a family with kids or a couple, or maybe you just want to do this with a friend, uh, just a great way to kind of walk through this season to prepare your hearts and your minds for Easter and all that means for us who know and follow Jesus. And so just um, uh, the, the guides, we were hoping they'd be here today, uh, but they arrived tonight. It's always like a few hours too late, but that's all right. Uh, through the week, and then next Sunday, you can find them at the Welcome Center. You can get them, you can pay for them there. Today, if you want to go, write your name on a list so that you know you have one uh, with your name on it. There's only 40 that we have purchased. It's by a guy named Paul uh, David Tripp. The name of the, the, the devotional book is called Journey to the Cross. You could get it on your own or get an ebook. Um, but um, the first day of Lent this year, 40 days before Easter, is Valentine's Day, Right? So, and I was thinking, oh, that's kind of weird, but then I thought, how appropriate, because that's the day when we celebrate, you know, maybe the love we have with a special other, and uh, there is no greater love than the love of God. You know that? And so, I, what an appropriate day just to begin that journey and uh, to celebrate the greatest love, because God loves you. And I don't know all of you. I don't know where you're coming from. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what you've done, but I know God loves you. A lot, more than you can know. And I know that God has good things for you, and He wants you to know the abundant life that He can offer you. And um, so I'm hoping that even today, you might grow in the knowledge and the experience of that. So God, as we come to Your Word, uh, it's not just old words, Lord. These are words that are living. They're words you continue to speak. You're the author of them, and you're here, Lord, and you want to speak to our hearts and our minds as a whole church, as individuals, as families. And so... We just, we're here, God, not just to check a box and then to, you know, move on and do lunch and whatever else. Lord, we're here to hear from you. Lord, we want to be shaped by you. So would you give us the ability to just to really hear, to really listen, Lord? And then would you just empower us to put into practice what you give us today? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So studies have shown that the average person does uh, about 80,000 hours in their lifetime of a particular thing. Any idea what it is? What does the average person do for 80,000 hours? Sleep. 
Sleep? Okay. I don't, I'm not sure. That might, for some it might be more, for some it might be less. Uh, but that's not the correct answer. Anyone else? Scrolling through TikTok? <laughs> Making meals? That sounded like a very cynical comment. You tell Ray, he's got to like carry his load, okay? You bring that message, you, Ray, you got to do your part. Someone else, I think, said it. Work, job. Yeah, that's right. They, they, the average person just in their paid work, if you're someone that has a career and you work outside the home, the average person will work 80,000 hours in their life. That's a lot of hours. That doesn't even factor in all the hours spent like mowing the lawn and cleaning the house and getting kids to where they need to go and making meals and all that other stuff that's unpaid work that doesn't necessarily always get the due that it deserves. So, I mean, there's many more hours of work than that, but, but you do a lot of work. A lot of work. You might do more work than you do almost anything else in your life. And so it's really important to kind of know what is work and, and know how to properly understand that. This, this morning we're going to talk a bit about work. And as we're continuing in our series at the beginning of the Bible, going through these first foundational chapters, which kind of set the whole scene of God's story and our story. These chapters really address the most foundational questions that every person asks. Is there a God? If there is, what is He like? And what does it mean to be a person? And why is the world here? Um, How do we relate to one another? You know, all these fundamental questions, God speaks to these at the beginning of the story. And one of those really big questions is, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be a human being? And so you do what you do. When you're looking for answers, you go to Wikipedia or you Google it, right? So I just Googled definition human being and it gave me, it gave me two answers. Uh, first of all, it said a human being is a bipedal mammal of the genus Homo sapien. Hmm. Okay. And the second one was a person. So then, I, then I, I Googled definition of person and it said a human being. I'm thinking... <laughs> I'm starting to get a sense Webster doesn't really have an answer to this question. What does it mean to be a human being? And I actually don't think Webster does, right? And yet it's such a fundamental question. What does it mean to be you? What are you here for? And so if you were here last week, we started to answer that question because the Bible gives us an answer. And last week, we looked at a really important word, a unique word, a word, that's, a word that's only given to God's creation of human beings, and that was the word image. Mankind is made in the image of God. And so last week, we, we said that bearing God's image means that we have a unique worth and a unique work. A unique, unique worth and unique work. And so last week, if you were here, we talked about how being a human being gives us a unique worth. And today we're going to talk about the work that God has given to humans. But, but that, that word helps us answer the question, why were you created? Why were you created? Well, you were created first and foremost to worship God. That's what we talked about last week. You were made to know God and to enjoy Him forever. That's your primary purpose, to know God, to have fellowship, to have communion with God forever. 
That's why human beings, we, we have this desire for the transcendent, that there must be something more, some true meaning. We, we, have this, we have this sense that death cannot be the end. There has to be something more because the way that God has made us and fashioned us, our heart and our mind and the soul He has given us, is all for the purpose of knowing Him and having a relationship with God. So you were made for a special relationship. And there's a lot of people going through life that have no idea that's what we're we're made for. That's what you were made for. A special relationship with God. But to be made in God's image also means that we were made for a special responsibility. You were created not just to worship. You were created to work. Any amens? No amens? You were created to work. (laughs) That one sounded forced. That one sounded coerced. So how do you feel when you hear the word work? Like, what are the emotions and thoughts that come to you? Do you start to bristle? You're like, Rusty, it's Sunday. Don't mention the W word. That's a four-letter word. Maybe some of you, you, when you think of work, what, what you think of is toil, burden, maybe you conceive of work as kind of almost like a a necessary evil, something you just got to do to live. And and maybe the goal of life is to aspire to be free of the burden of work. And so there are some people that are working so that they don't have to work. That's, That's the only reason they work and work hard is so that they can stop working. You know, Freedom 55 or Freedom 60. Who are we kidding? Freedom 65. Who are we kidding? Freedom 70. Right? And some of you are like, not even then, Rusty, not even then. Right? You know, the, the people of in the biblical times that were living around the nation of Israel, when they received this instruction from God, you know, that's kind of the perspective they had on work. We actually have the account of uh, the Babylonians. They were the, they were the big empire, the big power around Israel at the time. And so the Israelites might have even known this story. But the Babylonians, they had their own creation account too. It was called the Enuma Elish. And in this the account of the creation of the world and mankind, there were a bunch of gods, and the biggest god, his name was Marduk, and he fought with another god named Tiamat, and he defeated Tiamat, and he cut Tiamat in half and used part of the corpse of the dead god to create the earth. And then there are all these lesser gods that had sided with the slain god, and they were put to work, the duty of maintaining the earth, but then they formed a union and they protested against the god Marduk. And in response to their pleas, Marduk proceeded to create mankind from the blood of a fallen god named Kingu so that the gods could be relieved of the toil of work. And, And this is actually how it's written. In the Enuma Elish, it's what it's called. It says, arteries I will not and bring bones into being. I will create Lulu, man. <laughs> I'm glad we got Adam because Lulu, how that ring. I will create Lulu, man, be his name. I will form Lulu, man. Let him be burdened with the toil of the gods that they may, that they may freely breathe. They bound him, that is this King Kingu, and they held him before Ea, who inflicted the penalty on him, he severed his arteries, and from his blood he formed mankind and imposed imposed toil on man and set the gods free from the burden of work. Give it all to human beings. 
That's how they thought of it. That was their vision for what work was. It was, it was, a, it was something to free oneself of. It was beneath the gods to work. But you know what? Genesis gives us a very different picture. And the God of the Bible shows us He's a very different type of God. And so this morning, I want us to give a, a kind of a biblical vision of, of work. And again, this is so important because it's such a huge part of our lives. Tomorrow morning, many of you are getting up and you're going to work, whether inside the home or outside the home. So in Genesis chapter 1, when God comes to the creation of mankind, He says this in verse 26. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them, male and female, He created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves upon the ground. Okay, so mankind gets a mandate. Here's your job, first man and woman. Okay, fill the earth, which at least in part means make more of you. Make more of you. Expand, fill. And actually in two weeks' time, we're going to talk about marriage because the next few verses where we stopped... Talk about man, God's design in the relationship He created called marriage, which is a part of complete of fulfilling that mandate. And that's something God gave to the animals. He said the same thing to them, fill the earth. And He says that to us, fill the earth. But then He adds another command that He gives only to the human beings, and He says, and rule and subdue it. All the fish, all the animals, rule and subdue the earth. Now, have you ever read that and wondered, what does that mean? Your version might say to have dominion over, to subdue the earth. You ever wondered what that means? Now, now some people, I think, have just understand that you hear the word rule, subdue, and, and right away my mind goes to the WWF. I don't know why, but I read that in this picture of Saturday mornings getting up to watch like Roddy Roddy Piper and The Undertaker. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right, back in the day. And, and I, I envision this ring where these two people are in combat and the one like bounces off the road and clotheslines the one, then he climbs up on the and he does a pile drive on him, puts him in a headlock and starts feeding him shots, right? And so when I, when I hear like rule, subdue, right away in my mind, I guess what naturally comes is this picture, almost like the Babylonian where there's this conflict, like... Like you are opponents, the earth is your adversary, you're supposed to put it in a headlock and subdue it. Rule over it. It's yours. Take it. You're the owner. You're in charge. Bring that ownership mentality. You know, like some of us kind of like with your car, right? You throw the half-eaten hamburgers, McDonald's burgers into the back seat. It's like my car, I can do with it whatever I want. Some have taken those words and, and understood that to mean that God is just kind of giving a license to use, misuse, abuse, and exploit the world in any way you want because we're the highest. We're king. We rule. Do whatever you want. Um, and I think that attitude comes from a bit of a, a faulty theology that I know I grew up with. 
a faulty theology about the world and about the human body. Because my understanding was, and it didn't really come from the Bible because the Bible corrects this, like, like, you know, the day's coming when I'm just going to shed my body. It's like a husk, right? And I'm going to be free from my body and my spirit's going to go up and I'm going to live with God somewhere forever in heaven and I'm going to be free of the body. And then I kind of grew up with this understanding that, that I have a body, but I'm not a body. But the Bible says, no, as a human being, it's not just that you have a body, you are a body. You are body and soul. That's what it means to be human. And so when Jesus rose from the dead, He, he was given a transformed body. His same body was renewed. And, 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 and the Bible tells us that the future for all who follow Jesus is that we too will have a resurrected body. Our own bodies will be renewed because that's what God has made us to be. And I've had to change the way I think about that. And it's the same with the way we think about the world because I used to think, who cares? You know, pollution, do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. It's all going to perish anyway, right? Doesn't the Bible say, like, it's all going to be blown to smithereens and destroyed? What does it really matter what we do, what happens? Just kick the dog. (laughs) Sorry, woman in the back row. But, but, you know, there is a strain of thinking in the Christian church that comes from faulty theology, right? It doesn't matter how we treat creation because we were called to rule and subdue. And anyway, isn't this all just going to pass away, right? And we're going to go somewhere else. It's just temporary anyway, so what does it matter, right? But the Bible tells us that, that no, at, at the very end of the Bible, right, at the end of the story, Revelation 22, it, it, it pictures um, the future as a restored Eden, He's not going to do away with the earth. He's going to renew it. And I don't know how that all happens, what that looks like, but, but He's going to renew it to free it from all, all the corruption and the effects of sin and the curse, and He's going to restore it to the state to which He created it. And there we will dwell with God forever. Jesus came not just to renew our souls, but He came to redeem and renew our bodies and even all of creation. The Bible says this over and over again. But this faulty theology that says... It doesn't really matter because it's, it's just here for a time, kind of leads to this disregard or discard of the created world. But the planet is our home, and the earth will be our home. We need to affirm the goodness of creation. And so to rule and subdue just doesn't mean to do whatever you want, you're in charge, Did he say he wants me to be quiet? Is that what you caught? That's what I caught. Just 48 more minutes, bud. 48 more minutes. <laughs> what is that? Oh, that's right. So, so what does it mean to rule? What does it mean to rule and to subdue this world that God has made. Well, we have to understand what the word image means. We talked a bit about it last week, but you know, back in, in, in the biblical times, kings had images. That's, that's the very word that was used, right? Uh, a king had images that he would set up in his kingdom because the king could only be in one place at one time. He was on his throne in the palace, but he ruled over a land, and so he would create images, idols, statues of himself that he would set up 
right, as an indicator that this king rules here, right? He has authority here. And often they would set up these images of the king at the borders of the land so that all who came into that place knew who was in charge and how things worked here. And so, for us to be made in God's image means at least in part that we are made to represent God's rule in the world in a special way. We have a special responsibility to steward that which God has made. We are His representative, His royal representative in the world. Essentially, I think what that means is your work and my work is to be an extension of God's work. Where to work as God works. In order to know what it means to, to be in God's image, I think we have to kind of look back in Genesis 1 to see what God did. So if our work is like God's work, what was God's work like? Well, we find out first and foremost that God is a worker. God works. That would have been such a bizarre idea to the Greeks and the Babylonians and everyone else because, you know, the, the gods didn't work. That was beneath them, right? The little people did that. They lived lives of leisure, you know, the little people drop grapes in their mouth. And here we see a very different type of God, a God who works. You know, God could have just snapped His finger, you know, anthropologically speaking, metaphorically speaking. He could have, why did He create over six days the way He did day one, day two, day three? Why did He just, it's there, boom, He could do it. It wouldn't have been any harder for Him. He's showing us something. He's showing, guys, I want to show you what I do. I'm a God who works. I'm a God who gets his hands dirty. I'm a God who makes and then cares for what I make. And so at the beginning of, of the story of creation, right, it says he created everything, but it, but it, was, it was in an unformed state. Uh, it said the earth was formless and void. And then over the six days of creation, what does God do? L like a lump of clay, he starts to form it. He starts to shape it. He starts to make it productive and develop what he had like this lump, right? And so we see God forming and we see God filling what He has made. And this is His work. He is bringing order from chaos. He is causing His creation to develop and flourish. God gets His hands dirty. And we see that most clearly in Genesis 2, what we heard a few moments ago when it talked about how God took the earth and He, out of the earth, He formed man. And then he made a garden. God is a gardener. He makes this garden, these rivers, for the man to live in. And not just to live in and enjoy, but to work in and to care for and to tend. So the first thing that we need to see is God is not above work. We have a God who works and that's important because the Greeks, they believed that God's created humanity to do hard labor. That was demeaning for them to do. So someone has said, if God came into the world, what would He be like? For the ancient Greeks, He might have been a philosopher king. The ancient Romans might look like a just noble statesman. But how does the God of Hebrews, the Hebrews, come into the world? He comes into the world as a gardener and a carpenter. Remember Jesus, right? When he comes, what does he do? What does he spend the first 30 years of his life doing? Carpentry. God is a worker, and God delights in his work. He sees the work of his hands, and he says, it is good. He's someone who finds joy and satisfaction, fulfillment in his work. 
And he continues to care for his work. Some people, you know, they, they get to the end of, you know, they get to day seven, and, and, oh, and then it says, God rested from all his labor. As if God's done now, work is done. You know, it doesn't say that there was a morning and night on the seventh day, so the seventh day continues, and so God no longer works. No, that's not what Jesus says. Look what Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus has just healed on the Sabbath, you know, and, and the Pharisees, the religious class, they were kind of upset that Jesus actually did work, the work of healing and restoration on the Sabbath because you were supposed to not do anything. You were supposed to rest. And Jesus kind of in, in rebuking them said, my father, he's talking about God, right? God the Father. My father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. So he says, God never stopped working. God continues to work, to care for and attend his creation. And Jesus says, I too do his work. He's saying, I'm in God's image. I am working as my father works. In fact, elsewhere in the gospels, Jesus will say, I only do what I see my father in heaven doing. I do the work he does. In other words, in what Jesus is doing is he is being that perfect human, that perfect image of God in the world, right? He is ruling and subduing on his Father's behalf. Paul will say in Romans 8, 28, in all things God is working for the good of those who love Him. So God continues to work. So God choosing to depict His creative act as a regular work week over six days, I think that's significant. I think that says something. Now, we're, we're not 100% sure if, if He did it over six days and that's to, to give us a pattern for our own work. Or if, or if we have a pattern, he gave us a pattern for her, our work, and then the way that it was presented, God chose to present his work, was like the pattern he'd given us for our work. Either way, it doesn't really matter because the effect is the same. What he's saying is he's relating our work to his work. And so even in the story of creation, we see the similarities of, of, what, of what the first human beings do and how that's like what God has done in his work, right? God formed and he filled, and now these human beings, they're to do the same, right? God places them in the garden to do what? To work it, to tend, not just to enjoy it, because I don't know if you've ever gardened, but it takes work. I tried it once. <laughs> I didn't last. I'm like, this is, I thought you just planted it, and then like five months later, you went and you picked stuff. But the bunnies came, and they ate everything, and the weeds grew up and crowded it out. You mean you got to tend to it? You mean you got to prune it? Right? So God created the garden, but he, he, he brought it to a certain good state, and then he put the mankind in there to do what? To continue the work of tending, of cultivating, of bringing about its potential, of keeping development to make it more and more fruitful, to continue God's work of bringing about flourishing in what He had made by, by filling and forming. And so we see the, this first man doing the work of God. He's filming, or he's, <laughs> he's filling and He's forming. He names the animals. You, you remember in Genesis 1, God named the luminaries. He called the sun the sun and He named the moon. And now man is naming the animals right? He is, he is kind of organizing, he's categorizing, right? 
He's at work arranging all of this so that it works and it flourishes. He's bringing order from chaos, just like God brings order from chaos. This, I think, helps us understand what it means to rule and to subdue. It's to do the work of of bringing God's creation into ever more flourishing and productivity. That doesn't mean nature is bad, right? It, it, just, it just means nature is good, but it's, as someone said, it's undifferentiated, it's undeveloped, it's uncultivated. We're to come and we're to kind of see the untapped potential around us and to tap into the potential and to create. Like, God, we can, we can create, we can make, we don't create it out of nothing, but we can take, right? We can take, we can take the, the soil and bring about food. We can take the, the, the trees and bring about lumber and build So God has left us in this creation to bring about its untapped potential, not to exploit, but to cause it to flourish and to cause the flourishing of all who live in it. And so, of course, he gives this picture of the garden, and and this is most clearly seen with farming, right? How how the farmer tills the ground, he works the ground, and and he works with crops to bring about a, a, a fruitful harvest, the domestication of animals that help plow the ground, that provide milk and meat and wool. And then that wool that's shorn off, do you shorn? Do you, do you shorn? Do you shear wool? You shear wool? Whatever. You, you take, they, they take the hair off of sheep. I only found out about this a year ago. I was watching a YouTube video. I'm like, that's where wool comes from? I'm a city kid, like, Meat? I just thought meat came in a styrofoam tray, vacuum-wrapped. That's how God made it. You mean, you mean there's people that actually have to raise it? They raise it and they feed it? Like, there's farmers that actually have to like, plant crops to grow feed, and then there's other people that actually take the feed and then they raise cattle, and then there's other people that process that, and then there's other people that truck that. And, and like all, all the hands that are involved in bringing about the nourishment of our bodies... So you shear sheep and it comes off as wool and then someone takes it and makes it into yarn and then makes that into fabric and then someone else takes the fabric and cuts it and with tools and skill makes it into clothing that clothes people. You know what he's talking about here isn't just like being a farmer. He's not just talking about farming and gardening. This is a picture of God's mandate to us as human beings to bring about civilization, to create society. that has so many different parts to play in it. It means taking a broom to clean the floor, right? Because if you don't clean floors and if you don't wipe counter, the countertop from, 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 from the ooze that comes out of food, what happens? I think ooze is the technical term. Germs grow and then people get those germs and people get sick and if you trace it back good cleanliness is so important even the person that sweeps a floor and wipes a countertop is doing the work of ruling of subduing to help bring what god has made to develop it and bring it into flourishing using technology to harness the power of electricity you're like building hydroelectric dams and then operating those. Some of you, that's what you do, your hydro workers. And that's what that is. That's ruling and subduing to bringing about the flourishing of what God has made and the flourishing of people. It's when we take unformed minds and we fill it with truth and knowledge. 
right? Teachers, parents. It's when we take a sick body and we nurse that body and we treat it and we medicate, right? And that's nurses and doctors and and paramedics. It's when we take unformed gifts that people have and talents and we help develop them so that they become more and more productive for themselves and in society for the benefit of others. And we call those people's managers and coaches. There's so many different ways to exert God's rule and to bring about the development of what He has made and to, and to bring all that potential to flourishing. It can take so many different forms. All of these are ways to do what God has created us to do, to rule. All these ways of working are extensions of God's work in the world. I don't know if you think about it that way. Because sometimes I think, like, what does it mean to be, a, to be like a a Christian, well, I think of my wife, to be a Christian counselor. Is your wife a Christian counselor? Yeah, she's, she's, a, she's a counselor who's a Christian. If, if what you mean by Christian counselor is she, she only talks about Jesus or only kind of uses prayer or whatever, then I guess if that's your definition of a Christian counselor, no, but what she does is she takes the skill Right? She takes the skill of how, of how people work, the mind, and, and, and all of these techniques. To, to, for people come in and, and they're a mess. They're, they're feeling lost. And they don't know what to do. And their life is disordered and they're dysregulated. And then through the skills she has acquired, she helps that person bring order to their chaos. That's ruling. That's subduing. Right? It's, 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 it's causing to flourish. So, so being a Christian at your job doesn't mean I, I go to my job and then I tell other people about Jesus. That's a great thing to do. It doesn't mean I just go to work and the money I make I can take and now I can be generous and I can give to the missions and the church and build the kingdom of God. That's great. But it's more than that. Your work itself, your work itself is spiritual because it is an extension of the work of God in the world. Work has dignity because it's something that God does and, it, and because we do it in His place. That's what I want us to see in Genesis 1 and 2 here when we talk about work, right? Your work, whatever it is, maybe not whatever it is, like if you're selling drugs, then that's not, that's not work like this because that, that's, not, that's not bringing about flourishing. You should stop selling drugs. If you work at a strip club, that doesn't bring about flourishing. You should probably stop doing that. Uh, you know, if, if you are a predatory lender that, that exploits people and, and doesn't bring about flourishing, you should probably stop that. But for the vast majority of probably what you do when you wake up and you go to work or you go to school or you do work around your house, folding laundry, making the meal again, sweeping that floor again, all of those types of work God infuses with His incredible dignity because all of those things are an extension of God's work, ways that we rule on His behalf in this world to bring about good and the flourishing of what God has made. Because we have this tendency, don't we, to try to rank work? There's more important work, there's less important work we assign different. There's things we're maybe proud to say, oh, I'm this. And other things, man, I hope they don't ask what I do because then I have to say it's this. And they're like, oh, Okay. You know, we pay people different things. You know, we value different work differently. But God's not like that. 
Because God gives all work an incredible dignity because of what it can do in His name. So, so look at Colossians chapter 3, because here you have Paul giving some instruction to slaves. A lot of slaves had become Christians in the early church because, like we said last week, the church is... Um, was the place that had this really incredible idea that came from Genesis 1 and 2 and the gospel, that God loves all people the same and all people have equal worth and dignity to God. That, that was a radical idea. And it still is. And so because of that, a lot of, a lot of the oppressed and the marginalized um, came into the church and found this worth. So there were a lot, all I have to say, there were a lot of slaves that had become Christians. And so now Paul gives them some instruction in, in Colossians 3.22. He said, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry fa- their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Whatever you do, what is he talking about? He's talking about what a slave does. He's talking about like making the bed, preparing the meal, washing the dishes, running the errands, sweeping the floor, cleaning out the poop and pea pot. Forgive me if I should have used better words. Like, like the sewer work. They didn't flush. Someone cleaned that out. And if it doesn't get cleaned out, you know, you know what happens. Disease, death. Someone's got to do it. That was the slave. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. What an incredible statement. Servant. Hey, don't miss this point, slave. Like, no one else thinks that what you're doing has any sort of worth or value. God does. God does. All those mundane, menial tasks. What he's saying is you are a ruler. Look back to Genesis 1. You are doing the work of God in the world to bring about flourishing in your own way. Even in those tasks, you are representing God's rule, His care for His creation, His care for the created ones. Whatever you do, know that you are doing it unto the Lord. And you will receive an inheritance from the Lord. The Lord is pleased in your work when you do it with all of your heart. I think that would really change the way we do what we do, wouldn't it? I mean, if we're really to bring that mindset, like these things that seem kind of toilsome and mundane and repetitive, the fact that all of those things have the capacity to glorify God. Look what he says a few verses earlier in verse 16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, here's the same terminology, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So there he's talking about, like that was a few verses earlier, right? He's talking about what we're doing here. We're worshiping. Whatever you do, do it 
whether in word or deed, do it uh, all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then a few verses later, he's talking to slaves in their work. And I think we're supposed to see something here. We're supposed to see that there's not this divide between worship and work. You know, Sunday you worship, Monday you work. There's no relationship. All of your work is infused with dignity. All of your work has the capacity to honor God, to glorify Him, to make a difference, to exert His rule, even in some small way, but your way, pieced together with other people's ways, all contribute to the flourishing of what God has made. Your work has that capacity. It has that purpose. It is spiritual work. Your work is worship. That's what he's saying. It's not work or worship. It's work as worship. So in Genesis, we see God as a gardener, and in the New Testament, we see God as a carpenter. No task is too small a vessel to hold the immense dignity of, God, of, of work given by God. You know, you, you think of the Gospel of Luke. You have Jesus as a 12-year-old. He's born, then what happens? We don't have any more of the story. Now he's 12 years old. He's in the temple. He's, he's teaching with great authority. They recognize this guy, this guy is special. You would think this is just him coming onto the scene. All right, he's going to launch his ministry because he, he, here's, here's the chosen one. Here's the special one. And then what happens? And then he disappears. He disappears for 18 years. He doesn't come on the scene again until he's 30. What is he doing in the meantime? He's swinging a hammer for 18 years. Why? Is he just biding his time? What is he doing? No, he's doing what you and I and he were created to do. He's doing Genesis chapter 1. Rule and subdue. Cultivate, develop, create. Cause to flourish. That's what he's doing in his work as a carpenter. He's representing God's rule in the world. And if you're a carpenter, that's what you're doing too. So how do we glorify God in our work? Martin Luther said this, The maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. I think that's true. That's what, that's what, that's what God is saying in Genesis 1 and 2. Right? All of your work has the, is, is filled with dignity because it has the capacity to build and to bless So what is the biblical vision of work? The biblical vision of work is that work is for our fulfillment, for God's glory, and for others' good. It's those three things. Work is for our fulfillment. You know, they, they, say, that, they say that people that don't work actually get sick. I don't want to believe that. I choose not to believe that. But that's what they say. They say that a life devoid of work is a life of devoid of meaning. That doesn't mean like your job, your nine to five. It doesn't mean you don't retire. It just means that we're never supposed to stop working. We're never supposed to stop making, using our gifts to build and to bless. We were created 
for this work. And when we stop doing that work, that creative work of God, whatever it is, when we stop doing that, our minds and our spirits and even our bodies get sick. And studies actually show that. The biblical vision of work is that work is for our fulfillment. It's for God's glory and it's for others' good. Those three things. And if, we, and if we think of it that way, it will guard us from this unhealthy vision of work. Our, our world is full of unhealthy visions of work, right? Like, like, like some, for some, work is their identity. Work is everything. It's who they are. I mean, you can't have a meaningful life without work, but work is not the meaning of life either, which is why we have this rest that is given to us. And next week, we're going to talk about the rest of God, because you are not, you, you do work, but you are not just a worker. You are more than that. You are not just your work. And this is why we need to not just work, but we need to rest, because rest and Sabbath rest because, becomes a reminder of who we truly are before God, who our true identity, where our true identity lies. So it's not true that work is our identity. That would be an unhealthy vision of work that some people fall into. But on the flip side, some can view work as futility. Work is nothing. It's just drudgery. It's just what I have to do so that I can do the things that I want to do, the things that are, you know, good in life. And that's not true either. Work is for our fulfillment, for God's glory, and for others' good. To work for complete fulfillment or too little fulfillment is, is missing the point of what work is according to God. And, you know, if, if you're someone who... Maybe you struggle with that. Maybe you struggle with feeling like your, your work is significant and meaningful. Maybe you're like a stay-at-home parent and you really struggle because there's just a lot, a lot of mundane things. There's not a lot of appreciation. It just feels like drudgery. Um, feels like futility. Um, or maybe you're in a job where you just... Like, you're, you're, you're not sure what it, what it looks like to actually um, to, to, to view your work and to do your work um, as a Christian. So, if you're interested in exploring that because you struggle with that, I just want to commend to you this book. This is a very helpful book. Maybe the best book on that is by Timothy Keller called Every Good Endeavor, Connecting Your Work to God's Work. So, if you want to explore that more, you can just go on Amazon or somewhere and get that book. I think that would be a benefit to you. But just in our final few minutes here, what are some implications of this vision of work? I, I guess a few are this. You never truly retire. Maybe your work changes, but you never stop working, or you, are, you ought not to, because you were created to rule. And that takes different forms as you go through life, but you never truly retire from work. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter who you are. God has more for you to do. So if you're at a stage of life where you're retired and you're kind of wondering what that looks like, I mean, just know that, that God has more for you to do. There are all sorts of ways to work and use your efforts and your skills to be a blessing to other people. For those of you that have time like to, to volunteer with the kids, for ladies, take a break. To look after the little ones so, that, so the women can have, build a relationship and spiritual growth. 
Yesterday I was at Mission Fest and there was actually a piece of machinery in the church made, made by a guy in our church named Kurt Porteous. Right? He's a welder. That's what he does for a job. He charges people. He's good at what he does. He isn't retired yet. But he's got the skill. And then he sees these needs of people in Africa. Right? The land is not very productive. It's not very arable. They don't have the equipment or, or, or the knowledge to make the most, to make the most out of the ground. And so, so Kurt, along with some others, they, they, they took their skills, his welding skill, and, and, and they started to make these simple little machines. And if you go to Mission Fest this afternoon, you'll see, you'll see this little machine at Church of the Rock. The simple little planter. They can buy the parts for in South Sudan, and they weld them together, and it increases the harvest, and the community flourishes. Now, so he's just a welder using his gift to service his employees and help his employees, which is a way of ruling, but not taking that gift over here and, 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 and ruling in another way. God has given all of us gifts, skills, relationships that we're able to give to others that can help others flourish. You never truly retire. This, the second implication is this. Whatever work you do, you should do it with all your heart. Everything you do has the capacity to bring God glory and to represent His rule in the world, everything. Even if you're pumping gas at the gas station, you put gas into that tank and you're allowing someone to get somewhere important, to be with family, to build a relationship, to see the kids' recital, or to get to work where that person is able to use their skills, right, to produce in a way that benefits others. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart because God gives it dignity. The third thing I would say is maybe you want to start by cleaning your room. Maybe I need to start by cleaning my room. I'm, 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 I can be a bit of a messy person, but you know, there's, there's a guy by the name of Jordan Peterson. Some of you have heard the name. You know, you're familiar with some of his stuff on YouTube. Um, some of his stuff, like I think, is beneficial. I'm, you know, some of the stuff I'm not so sure. But uh, he, he wrote a really famous book recently called 12 Rules for Life. It comes out of Genesis 1 and 2, although I don't know that he necessarily considers himself a Christian, but he sees the wisdom in it. And, and so he has these 12 rules for life, how to, how to kind of live a meaningful, fruitful, fulfilling life. And one of them is clean your room. That's one of the 12 rules, clean your room. It's this idea, you know, people, they, they want to make a difference in the world, right? There's all these problems out there. He says, he says you need to start right around you. You need, to, you need to bring order to the chaos in your life right in your own space. You need to become ruler of your bedroom, ruler of your home. You know, I, I remember being in Bible college and, and having to write a, a paper. You know, what I came to, you know what I came to understand? I, I couldn't really concentrate and focus and sit at the computer and write a paper when I had my underwear hanging from the ceiling fan <laughs> doing this, right? My room was a mess. It was chaos. And you know what? Because I had chaos around, my, my mind was chaos. And I couldn't, I couldn't be productive. I couldn't focus. And I, and I learned something. When I actually order my space, remove the chaos, I can actually be more productive and lead a more fruitful life. This is the way that God has wired us, right? To be the, those that bring order from chaos. So, um, um, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about what that looks like in my life, even in my own room. So maybe that's where you need to start. You, you need to start something very close to you. You need, you need to start by ruling over your home. Organize the closet. Lastly, 
We need to make every effort to discover work that satisfies our gifts and our calling and produces benefit to those around us. Not to compare ourselves with others, what they do, what they have, how fruitful they are, doesn't really matter, right? The church is kind of the little ecosystem for what God wants for the world, right? The church is that place that embodies the kingdom of God. And so Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 12, right? In the church, there are many parts. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The hand can't say that I don't, not, the hand can't say because I'm, I'm not an eye, I, I'm nothing, I have nothing to give. He says, every single part in the body is important. Every single part, when it does its part, serves the common good. This is true of the church, and this is true of our work in the world, whatever that work looks like, right? Whatever God has called you and gifted you to do, you know, find that which fits you and satisfies you, and then do it with all your heart to produce benefit to those around you. So, I'm, I'm over time here. So, how do you think about your work? Maybe here's the final question. How can you view your work as an extension of God's work? How do you think about your work? How do you do it? How can you view your work, your gifts, your skills as ways to do what God has created you to do and called you to do, to rule, right, this world, and to bring out flourishing in what He has made? I just want to invite you into a time of prayer and, and just lay that question before God. And God, we just ask you to show us what it looks like to be, to be those who don't just hear your word, but those who obey your word. Lord, would you just show us, each of us in the room, what, what does it look like for us to, in our own way, to represent you in the way that we do our work? You know, as we go to our homes and our schools and our workplaces and our, and our areas of service and volunteering, Lord, how can we fulfill this mandate and do that what you created us to do, to rule over what you have made, to care for, to work and tend to this beautiful world that you have made. Lord, would you just use us um, to accomplish great things for your name? Would you use us and our work, Lord, just to, to build up and to be a blessing and to be, to be a benefit um, to those around us, Lord, and in doing so, just bring you Lots of glory. Yeah, just help us as we go back as teachers and nurses, as parents, you know, as people working in the trades, as farmers, um, you know, those who has retired that are serving in areas of ministry. Lord, just wherever we go, would you just, yeah, allow us to bring this attitude and this vision for work into that space for your glory. In your son's name we pray. Amen.